Hello, I'm Kitty Fisher and this is my second Brighton walk. It's an extension of the first one I uploaded. So the first one is all the best bits of Brighton in a couple of hours and it's always close to the shops and cafes. It's visually pleasant even if you aren't listening to the narration. But whilst recording the first podcast, I ended up with a lot of extra information that would have meant taking detours down alleyways and looking beyond the obvious. So this tour takes you down some of the side streets but goes into more detail about the characters who lived there. This tour is shorter and flatter, so it's easier to walk, but doesn't follow the busier shopping streets like the first one. I'm going to start at the clock tower, continue south towards the sea, go through the lanes and round the steam, and finish by the Royal Pavilion. About half of the route is through pedestrianised streets, although there are a couple of busy roads at the beginning and at the end of the walk. And finally, if you enjoyed this podcast, please tell others, leave a review, or click on the buy me a coffee link at the end of the episode description. Start at the clock tower, which is a 15 minute walk south towards the sea from Brighton Station at the junction of Queen's Road, North Street, West Street and Western Road. The clock tower was built in 1888 to commemorate Queen Victoria's Golden Jubilee. It was a bit of a trend at the time to build commemorative clock towers in cities around the country to commemorate the Jubilee. The architectural style has been criticised but it's become a well-known landmark in the city. Near the top, there are ships jutting out, marking directions to Hove, Kemptown, the station and the sea. And at the bottom, on the south side, there's a little door. That's because there used to be public toilets underneath the tower. But the quirkiest part of the clock tower is the golden ball that's threaded on a spike at the top. This is known as a time ball. It was designed, but not invented, by local inventor Magnus Volk, who is most famous for the Volk's electric railway that runs along from the aquarium to the marina. Volk was the son of a German clockmaker, but he was born in a house in Western Road, just about a mile from here. Time balls were used by the ancient Greeks, and before the invention of clocks and watches, they were a way for people to measure time. The ball is operated hydraulically, and moves slowly up the pole over the space of an hour, enabling anyone who can see its position on the pole to accurately know the number of minutes past each hour. This was a particular use for sailors to judge tides. There were time balls in Greenwich, Deal and other harbours in the past. However, Volk's Brighton time ball was pretty unnecessary as there was a clock on the tower and it was not visible from the sea. Makes me wonder if his father's clock-making profession influenced his choice of design. The time ball only operated for a few years before locals complained about the noisy clang which occurred every time the ball fell. Recently, the time ball has been restored and I'm told that it moves up the pole as it did when it was first unveiled. Now, a couple of years ago, I hired a paddleboard down at the seafront, and when I asked what time I should return, I was told that the I-360 goes up and down every half hour. So the paddleboard hire shop were using the I-360 as a modern time ball, just like the ancient Greeks, and probably without realising it. We're now going to continue in the direction of the sea, stopping at the top of Duke's Lane, which is about 100 yards down on the left. Looking down the road, you can see St Paul's Church. It has a grey wooden spire and gargoyles jutting out at the base. This church was built in 1848 by Henry Wagner, who was the vicar of Brighton at that time. Wagner was from a very wealthy family, and he was a controversial figure during his lifetime. On the one hand, he was generous to the poor. He built six churches in Brighton and ensured that there were free pews. In the past, pews had to be rented, and this meant that the poor could not afford to go to church. He also built a number of almshouses for single women and a home for former prostitutes. 
He helped build the first hospital in the town and was involved with establishing the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. This sounds wonderful, but he was an extremely zealous man who never backed down in an argument. He made many enemies in his lifetime and was often jeered in the streets. An unusual fact about this church is that in 1947, the restoration of the church spire was paid for by a donation from Emperor Haile Selassie of Ethiopia, also known as Rastafari, and worshipped by Rastafarians. Haile Selassie was exiled in Britain at that time and was a regular visitor to Brighton. There's a plaque in the church commemorating his generosity. The church opening times are displayed on a board outside, but we're going to turn left and walk down Duke Street. About halfway down Duke Street on the corner of Middle Street is the Victory Inn. This pub is decorated with lovely green ceramic tiles and the image over the door is Nelson's flagship, the Victory. Although the tiling was added in the early 1900s, it was painted over until quite recently and as the paint started peeling off, it revealed the beautiful tiling beneath. Inside, there are still many original features such as the etched glass windows and Victorian fireplaces and tiny rooms. Continue down Duke Street until you get to the bottom. The road curves around to the right into Ship Street. Just round the corner on the right, there's a covered alley with a military uniform above it. Close to this, there's a small plaque with the image of a sun. It's painted over in white, but can still be seen on the wall. This type of sign dates from the 1700s. After the Great Fire of London, fire insurance companies came into being. The first was the Phoenix Fire Office, established in 1680 and then the Sunfire Office in 1710, and others followed. Each company had their own fire brigade, and the plaques, made of lead, iron or tin, identified the insured house. If you were insured, any fire brigade would come and put out your fire, and then claim on your insurance. I can imagine that there'd be many problems with this system. If a fire started in an uninsured house connected to an insured one, who would put it out? And what if several fire brigades turned up at the same time? I don't think it's a service that can work as a private business, so it's just as well that we have one fire brigade today. Continue past Duke's Lane and follow the road round to your left past the Quakers' Meeting House into Prince Albert Street. This road was built in 1842 to enable carriages access from Ship Street to the new Town Hall, which we will see in a moment. It cut across the original grid of narrow streets and twittons, and several houses were demolished to build it. On the left, set back slightly from the street, at an intersection with Nile Street, Meeting House Lane and Black Lion Street, is an impressive Georgian house. In 1842, this was the house of Isaac Bass. He was a wealthy grocer who lived here with his daughter and servants. Continue straight on and the road curves east past the Town Hall. Completed in 1832, the Town Hall was built on the site of the Old Town Market which was also the earlier site of the even older Priory of Bartholomew's. When builders were clearing the site, they unearthed an ancient burial ground, but were told to keep digging, as they were only Catholics. The town hall contains police cells, which were in use until the 1960s, and are now the old police cells museum. The building is in Greek Revival style, and was designed by the architect of the old Bedford Hotel that mysteriously burnt down. This is discussed in the first podcast about Brighton. Inside, there are original mosaic floor tiles, ornate staircases, and acid-etched glass doors. The building is in use for weddings, council meetings, and award ceremonies. Continue past the town hall and follow the building around to your right. 
you will now be facing the back of the Jury's Inn Hotel. On the left is an old cottage with dark timbers. Turn left down a very narrow alley that leads through the buildings and out into East Street. It's not a very exciting place, but it's an iconic location for fans of the film Quadrophenia and has been renamed after the film. The film is a rock opera by 1960s British band The Who. It shows the fighting that took place between rival gangs of mods and rockers in Brighton in the 1960s. The scene filmed in this alley shows a steamy snob between the main character, Jimmy, and his love interest, Steph. Coming out of Quadrophenia Alley into East Street, turn left. If you still need a fix of the 1960s youth culture, there's a shop that sells all things related to mods on your left. Next door to this shop is C&H Western Limited. This is a shop that I haven't been into until I started researching Brighton's history. The shop was established in 1819 when George IV was the Prince Regent. It's an independent retailer of firearms and is one of the oldest shops in the town. Although the interior of the shop has few historical relics, there's an old sign inside and some pistols dating from 1760. Now walk towards the sea and turn down the narrow lane at the bottom of East Street between East Street Tap and the rather seedy sounding Platinum and Lace Gentlemen's Club. This building was originally the Savoy Cinema and was built in the 1930s in an Art Deco style with Japanese themed interior. At the end of the alley is Pool Valley which is now the coach terminus. In a document from 1296 this area was referred to as the Pool. Before the road was built from London it was the place where the Wellsbourne River discharged into the sea. A bourne is an intermittent river, which means that it only appears when the water table in the chalk below reaches the surface. In the 1790s, the Prince Regent and his neighbour, the Duke of Marlborough, laid wooden sewers to drain a stagnant pool that collected in front of what was then the Marine Pavilion. At this time, Pool Valley was also bricked over. Walk straight across the top of Pool Valley and through into the steam. On the corner are the Royal Albion Hotel and the Youth Hostel Association building. Albion is an ancient name for Britain. The name is included in football clubs such as Brighton and Hove Albion, and it is said that areas of white cliffs use this name. The Royal Albion Hotel was built on the site of Dr Richard Russell's house. This is the man who started the trend for sea bathing in Brighton. He is therefore responsible for Brighton's development from a poor fishing village to a fashionable resort. The Royal Albion Hotel was designed by Eamon Henry Wilds and opened in 1826. Famous guests include Oscar Wilde and the heiress Angela Burdett Coutts. Described as the richest heiress in England, she was friends with Charles Dickens and spent part of each year at the hotel with her lifelong companion Hannah Brown. When Hannah died, she scandalised polite society by marrying a man 28 years her junior. Angela Burdett Coutts was a great philanthropist and contributed to many good causes, including drinking fountains for dogs. Cross over the road in front of the youth hostel and head north past the fountain in the centre of the old steam. This area of the steam would once have been for drying fishermen's nets. The stones at the bottom of the fountain once lay scattered around this area and were perfect for draping fishing nets. Because the fishermen of the town had rights to the use of this area, the land was not built on but remained open. But when the town became a fashionable holiday destination and expensive private houses were built on either side, the steam became an area for the promenade of royal and distinguished personages. In the 1830s, a road was built that joined North Street and St James's Street so that carriages no longer had to drive around the outside of the central gardens. 
One observer of 1826 stated that the assemblage of beauty and fashion that promenade the eastern side of the Steen at this period of the day, united with the charming views of the sea, on which float many a buoyant skiff, and the gentle strains of music, sweeping along the undulating breeze, presented a degree of fascination difficult to be described. These gardens are now covered with nature's robes and are often crowded with a gay throng. This reminded me of the end of the Brighton Naked Bike Ride in 2019. At the end of the ride, an assemblage of humanity chained their bikes to nearby railings and danced naked, once again presenting a degree of fascination difficult to describe. After numerous cans of cut-priced cider, they were indeed a very gay throng. Just west of the fountain, there's a cafe that was originally a tram station. A tram service operated in Brighton from 1901 until 1939, and this particular tram stop had underground toilets which are still in use today. But let's return our thoughts to the 1800s, where wealthy visitors could stroll through the gardens of the Steen and stop to buy gingerbread from the legendary Phoebe Hessel. When Phoebe lived in Brighton, she was an old woman, but at the age of 15, she had disguised herself as a man and enlisted in the army as a foot soldier. She served in the West Indies and Gibraltar until she was injured and her true sex was revealed. As a civilian, she married and had nine children, all of whom died before her. She moved to Brighton and married a fisherman, Thomas Hessel. But when he passed away and she was too old to work, she was forced to go into the workhouse. However, the Prince Regent heard of her plight and granted her a pension of half a guinea a week. She attended his coronation in 1820 and died at the age of 108. Opposite the fountain on your left is the YMCA, which now provides accommodation for homeless people in Brighton. This house was originally built for Maria Fitzherbert, mistress of the Prince Regent. When the Prince Regent fell in love with Mrs Fitzherbert, she was a twice-widowed Catholic. Although she wasn't interested at first, his tactic of writing 40-page begging letters and threatening suicide brought her round in the end. As he would never have been given permission to marry a Catholic, the prince married her in secret by bailing out a jailed priest who agreed to do the deed. Just north of Mrs Fitzherbert's house, on the other side of North Street, is the Royal Pavilion. Originally a farmhouse surrounded by fields, the prince had it altered to include columned domes and additional wings on either side of the original building. When he became regent, he had the exterior remodelled in Indian style. His tastes were influenced by popular paintings of the time that depicted exotic regions of the empire. The interior of the palace was decorated with Chinese silks and ceramics. George IV loved Brighton and held lavish banquets here, but by the time of his coronation he was overweight and increasingly dependent on laudanum, a mixture of morphine and codeine mixed with alcohol. A typical breakfast for the king consisted of steak, pigeons, champagne, brandy, port and wine. Vastly overweight and wearing a wig and makeup, he was so embarrassed at being seen in public that he built a tunnel from the pavilion to his riding stables, and in the last years of his life he was rarely seen in public. When George IV died, the Times stated, there never was an individual less regretted than this deceased king. Despite squandering millions of pounds of taxpayers' money on houses and clothes, and despite all the drugs and booze and years of womanising and self-indulgence, George IV had a positive impact on Brighton, and probably improved the lives of the people living in the town in the 1800s. After his death, Brighton continued to thrive, and the pavilion was eventually bought by the city council and turned into a museum. 
This is the end of the walk. The next podcast is about the Pavilion Gardens and is an interview with the head gardener, Robert Hill Snook. Thank you for listening.